continuing our study of Genesis 3 this morning. Find a Bible, if you don't have one already, and find the third chapter of the Bible. It'd be, I think, strategic for you to just open up the Bible and lay it on your lap. I try my best to just point us to the text for the next 40 or 50 minutes. And so it would be good for you just to have the text open in front of you so your eyes can drop down and see where we're at, where we're going, see whether what I'm saying is what the Bible says or not. So Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we've seen Adam and Eve break God's word, sin against God, realize that they're naked, try to hide themselves behind the bushes. Well, first they try to hide themselves with fig leaves, and then they run behind the bushes. And then, remarkably, we saw God... In verse 8 and 9, come to Adam and Eve, and instead of driving them out of hiding with threats and with fear and with anger and with frustration, he seeks to draw them out with mercy and grace. Why don't you just look at verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are are you? And this is so instructive for us because it means that God comes to sinners in their sin, in the middle of their rebellion, and seeks to draw them out with mercy rather than drive them out with threats and anger. He's still doing so today, maybe even in this room this morning. As we keep going through Genesis 3, we'll see and we've seen that God continues to draw Adam and Eve out of hiding with questions. Unfortunately, God's questions just lead to more hiding. This time it's verbal hiding. Verse 11, he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so instead of a simple, yes, we did what you said not to do. Yes, God, we have sinned. Yes, God, we need mercy. Instead of that, They maneuver themselves around the truth and wiggle themselves around the truth and keep hiding behind their excuses, trying to evade their responsibility and minimize their guilt. Then the Lord turns his attention to the serpent. This is where we're going to pick up today, verse 14. The Lord has talked to Adam and then he talked to Eve. Now he's going to talk to the serpent Verses 14 and 15 is our text this morning. And I'll just say at the very beginning that the Lord comes with no questions to the serpent. There's no questions here. This is not a dialogue. This is a monologue. So let's see what God says to the slithery serpent. Genesis 3:14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, The this is referring back to verse 13, the deception of Eve. The serpent deceived me, Eve said. Then the Lord said, because you have done this, because because you have done this deceptive work, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
No questions. God goes directly into punishment. This begins a section, verses 14 through 19, of divine oracles of judgment against a serpent first, then Eve, then Adam. The same order in which the fall happened. The serpent tempted Eve, who then gave fruit to Adam. This is how God will address them. He addresses the serpent, then he addresses Eve, then he addresses Adam. And he deals with them according to their respective sins. He levies out consequences that will match their sins. Today we're going to look at the judgment on the serpent, verses 14 and 15. The next week we're going to look at the judgment of Adam and Eve, verses 16 through 19. So if we could outline our text this morning, verses 14, say that there will be, number one, dust for the serpent, verse 14. Number one, there will be dust for the serpent, verse 14. And then number two, there will be death for the serpent, verse 15. Death for the serpent. Dust for the serpent, death for the serpent. So this text plainly says that because of his sin, the serpent will crawl and the serpent will be crushed. That's the main thrust of this text. Now let's try to dig in and see what it means and what it means for us. Number one, dust for the serpent. Verse 14, because you have done this, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The Lord curses the serpent, says he'll crawl in his belly and eat dust. Again, there's no questioning here. The Lord isn't looking for a confession like he was from Adam and Eve. He's not looking for a confession from the serpent. This is a sentencing, not a trial. And oh, praise the Lord that God hasn't treated us like he treated the, the serpent. There's a text, a kind of obscure text in Jude. Jude 6 says what happened to the fallen angels. Jude 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So angelic beings rebelled and immediately they're punished and kept in prison until the judgment day. Praise God that's not what happened to Adam and Eve and their posterity, namely us. Rebellion didn't happen, and then we weren't just immediately thrown into prison, locked away until judgment. Despite their sin, Adam and Eve, as we'll see even more clearly next week, continue to receive God's concern and provision. What grace has our God for his image bearers? Verse 14 it's the first time God curses something in the Bible. Cursed are you, serpent, above all livestock. Cursing, of course, is the opposite of blessing. God's curse removes a creature from God's blessing. Cursing is a big deal in the Bible, by the way. And I don't mean like, oh, I dropped an F-bomb accidentally. You know, like, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, in the Bible, cursing is... In other words, in the Bible, people don't believe in luck. People don't look at someone whose, whose life is just falling apart and say, oh man, they're just so unlucky. There's a real thing in the Bible as divine cursing and divine blessing. This is the first time God curses something in the Bible. Interestingly, again, as we'll see next week, we'll start to see here, 
There are no curses against Adam and Eve. Only the serpent, here in verse 14, and then the ground in verse 17 are cursed. Adam and Eve aren't cursed by God. Meaning, or at least implying, that God's blessing upon them hasn't been utterly lost. But for the serpent, God's blessing has been utterly lost. The serpent, of course, is more than a mere snake. Satan himself took the form of this serpent in the garden. Revelation 12, 9 says that that ancient serpent, the devil, the accuser of the world. So we know that this serpent is Satan. So when God curses the serpent here, he's not merely cursing snakes, though we might like him to, amen? But that's not what is indeed happening. God's not just cursing reptilian, slithery snakes. He's cursing Satan himself here in verse 14. And when he says that the serpent is cursed, quote, above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, this doesn't mean that the other animals are also guilty, but are less guilty than the serpent. This doesn't mean that the other creatures are implicated in the serpent's crime, that that they're guilty but getting a lesser punishment. It doesn't mean that. It means that there's now an alienation, alienation between the serpent and the other animals. Part of the serpent's punishment is alienation from all the other creatures. As one scholar says, the most subtle of all animals now becomes the loneliest and oddest of the animals. End quote. Think about it. When was the last time you saw a snake cuddling up with any other animal? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen a lot with many animals, I guess. Cats and dogs kind of do sometimes. I don't know. I'm sure there are other animals who cuddle up together, but snakes definitely don't do that. They're secretive. They're sly. They're, they're lone rangers. They strike out of the darkness because they have, in a sense, been cursed. In a sense. More on that in a moment. The serpent's cleverness in verse 1 is distinguished or distinguished it from the other animals. 3.1 The serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field. But now the curse for his trickery will distinguish him from them as well. So he was already distinguished in some sense. He was more clever than all the other beasts of the field. And now after his sin, he will be even more distinguished, but in a bad way. The ill use of his cleverness resulted in divine cursing. And alienation. And there's a lesson for us in this, brothers and sisters. There's, this, there's a profound lesson for us in this. I think this means, by way of implication, that we should be careful how we use our gifts. Be careful how you use your gifts. In other words, there's a way to use our God-given gifts that invoke God's curse rather than God's blessing. And it has to do with, are we serving for God's honor or our own? The serpent used his cleverness for his own gain to try to undermine God's honor, and it went tragically bad for him. Let that be a lesson for all of us. 
it's God who pronounces this curse. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord God said to the serpent, cursed are you. So this means that the curse is effective. It's guaranteed. It will happen. He is cursed. And proof of this curse is fulfilled, or was fulfilled, in that snakes do indeed crawl in their bellies, eat dust, have hostility with men. So while God didn't necessarily curse every snake that you see, there is a sense in which we're supposed to look at a snake crawling on its belly, symbolically eating the dust, though we know it doesn't actually eat dust, and its hostility with men, and remember what happened here. That image, that that reality is supposed to remind us of a deeper, more important reality. As we get going into these consequences and then next week with Adam and Eve, we're going to see that the consequences God gives to each party involve a life function and then a relationship. A life function and then a relationship. So the, cur- uh, the serpent is cursed in his mode of motion, verse 14, and then he's, vo- uh, uh, he's, he's cursed in his relationship with the woman and her seed, verse 15. So there's a life function and a relationship. We're going to see that with, with Adam and Eve as well. This is instructive for us, again, because it means that each one's penalty will match their sin. The serpent will crawl on his belly and eat dust. Why? Because he tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. He said, Eve, hey, eat this fruit you're not supposed to eat. God says, okay, you're going to eat dust. The punishment fits the crime. God's judgments always match our crimes. God never judges arbitrarily or capriciously. It's so tempting to say, God, that's not fair. But God always does what is exactly right because he's perfect in justice. And on judgment day, everyone will get exactly what they deserve. Not more, not less, because God's justice is perfect. His punishment will meet our crimes Of course, unless our crimes have been covered by the blood of the innocent victim, Jesus Christ. And then we get to go free, despite our crimes. This is amazing. So we aren't meant to think that because of what happened here, that serpents used to have four legs and now they don't. Now they crawl on their bellies. Or that they literally eat dirt now because they don't. Think of it, if the curse here, verse 14, changed the body of the snake, then it also changed its diet. If it changed its body, then it also changed its diet, because it says both. But we know that the diet of a snake isn't dust. The intent, then, is that these statements are to be seen as two symbolic expressions of humiliation and subjugation. Eating dust is the way the Old Testament, time and again, describes defeated enemies. The image of the serpent crawling around on its belly eating dust is meant to convey total defeat. It's meant to say that God's curse has effectively put the serpent in its place. He's defeated. This is what happens when you lose in the Bible. You crawl on your belly and you eat dust. This is all over the prophets. So this doesn't have to be read so literally that we think that Snakes used to have legs or they really eat dirt or something like that. That is not the intent. The intent is that Satan 
is humiliated. Because of what he did, he's defeated. Total defeat. But notice that the serpent doesn't get killed immediately. Maybe we might wish that God came in with a shovel or an axe or a hoe. What do you kill snakes with? I don't know. Where I'm from, we just grab whatever's nearest. We just go to town. What if God would have just taken him out right then? Why, why does God leave him to crawl around like a defeated enemy? It says, all the days of your life. So the serpent will live many more days. He's a defeated foe. He's on his belly. He's eating dust. He's done. But he's still alive, crawling around. His final defeat is delayed. More on that later. Why? Why does God leave the serpent? Why does he leave him to slither around? There are several ways the Bible answers this. One, clearly in this text, as we'll see in a moment, verse 15, is so that God's plan of redemption through the woman's offspring can start to unfold. He will be crushed through the seed of the woman. But in the New Testament, there are other answers to this question. Why does God leave Satan around? Well, let me just give you one that I, I think, I hope, I pray is, is practical for you. God leaves Satan around on the earth to sanctify his people in every generation. Let me say that again. Satan leaves, excuse me, God leaves Satan around to sanctify his people in each generation. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 7, where Paul, after having these visions, being caught up to the third heaven, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the, in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So two times at the front and the end, to keep me from becoming conceited, to keep me from becoming conceited, God allows this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. Why? To sanctify his servant. To keep his pride in check. Paul is a guy just like us. He struggled with pride like all of us. So God's purpose in allowing Satan to harass Paul was to keep his conceitedness at bay. In God's brilliant wisdom, he harnesses Satan's harassing of Paul so that it serves God's purposes in Paul's sanctification. Satan's attempts to hurt Paul inadvertently humble Paul and make him rely more gladly on the grace of Jesus. This is literally what Paul says. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of weaknesses so that the power of Christ may, may rest upon me. So why does God, why is one reason, what is one reason why God leaves Satan on the earth? To allow his self-defeating attacks on God's people that will result in our growth in the grace and joy and power of Jesus Christ. Amen? Sweet. God uses Satan for our sanctification. Satan is a pawn in God's game. He's not equal in power. Yes, he's real and has power. But God is using him strategically 
in a way that's self-defeating. In other words, Satan thinks he's doing something bad, but God says, no, you're actually doing something good for me, for my people. Thank you. And that was my plan, by the way. God is in absolute control of what happens in the world after sin. If this text tells us anything, it's that even after sin, God still reigns. He's the one who comes and starts living consequences. He's the one who decides what will happen to the serpent and to Adam and Eve. There's no dialogue here. God decides what will happen even in a fallen world. He has absolute control over Satan. He decides what will happen to Satan. And here in this text, what we're seeing in verse 14 is that the serpent is cursed, and part of that curse is the penalty of humiliation. He has been humbled. He will crawl around on his belly and eat dust. But then we move into verse 15, and we're going to see that this curse carries an even deeper humiliation and a glorious promise. So verse 15 We see death for the serpent. So verse 14, dust for the serpent. Verse 15, death for the serpent. I will, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the Lord continues his sentencing of the serpent, telling him that he'll be defeated by the seed of the woman. The the Lord condemned him to crawl, verse 14, and then to constant conflict a conflict that will end in his head being crushed, verse 15. God says there will be enmity or hostility or antagonism between the serpent and the woman and between their offspring. This verse isn't meant to tell us why we hate snakes. But the universal dislike of snakes, amen. There are some people who love snakes. Forgive me if that's you. I just don't resonate with where you're at on that. There are some who love, and, and I get it, we need snakes for the, we went to this snake show at the kids' school, and the guy was like, don't kill snakes, we need them for the environment. And I was like, what? I guess he's right, you know, they need to eat the rodents and everything. But, anyways, I digress. This verse isn't meant to tell us why we hate snakes. But it is, again, meant to show us that there's a universal dislike of snakes, that's, that's meant to point to an ongoing conflict between the serpent and the woman, between good and evil, between Satan and God, between the children of Satan and the children of God. The entire history of this conflict, of course, isn't spelled out here. Only the conclusion, the end there of verse 15, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God tells us straight up that the serpent has a limited life expectancy, that his existence will come to a violent end. So verse 15 is the ultimate spoiler. The beginning of the Bible tells us what will happen in the end. This is good news. Praise God. Right? Think of it. This is is God telling us, telling His people, that we never have to wonder whether evil will prevail in the earth. From the very beginning, brothers and sisters, we've never had to wonder whether evil will win. Praise His name. This is kindness. 
This is God's grace to us saying, I'm going to win. I know that y'all just sinned and this is, good, this is bad and consequences is, are coming. But oh, by the way, here's the end of the story. Evil loses and I win. The word bruise. Maybe your translation says crush or strike. There at the end of verse 15, he'll bruise your head or bruise his heel. Same Hebrew word, both, phrase, both phrases. Same word describing the combatant's parallel action. So it's a picture of you know, one bruises one and the other bruises back the other. But it's the location of the bruising that tells us who wins. Of course, a blow to the head is greater than a blow to the heel. He, offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head. And you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. A blow to the head can kill you. A blow to the heel may wound you. The serpent will die. And the seed of the woman will be injured in the process. More on that in a few moments. But let's look at the word offspring. This is a crucial word in the book of Genesis. This word offspring, maybe your translation says seed. It's literally the word seed. And the, the, the theme of seed or offspring is a massively important theme in the book of Genesis. The word offspring can refer to, to someone's collective descendants or to a specific individual. So I might say Elisha, Gideon, and, Eli- and, and Lydia are my offspring, me and Susie's offspring. Or I could also say, Lydia is my offspring. Both are fine ways to use that word. This can be collective or narrow and individual. What it's saying is that there will be a conflict between the collective descendants of the serpent and the collective descendants of the woman those who fought against their creator are now going to be fighting one another. But then, remarkably, at the end of verse 15, God moves to the masculine, uh, masculine singular pronoun. Grammar is not my thing. I'm not great at this. Y'all have Hebrew grammar questions. See Mason afterwards. But this is, I think, clear even in our English Bibles. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So we have it after that phrase alone, we have this collective picture. Your offspring, serpent, versus her offspring, woman. We're gonna have hostility. But then he, masculine singular pronoun, he shall bruise your head. And you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. Do you see what the writer has done here? Do you see what God is saying? Here. Though the conflict is between two offsprings, the goal is the final crushing of not just the offspring of the serpent in general, but rather the snake itself. The seed of the woman will crush the snake. Enmity will exist between both offsprings, but the goal is the crushing of the serpent himself. And of course, as you've probably seen in movies or books or whatever, when you, when you cut off the snake's head, what happens to the body? It dies. So the goal is the crushing of the head of the snake. And when that happens, all of his offspring will also be defeated. I won't belabor this much longer, but I think this is so vitally important that 
we see this and meditate on this verse for just a few moments longer. This verse is massively important in our understanding of what God is saying in the Bible. In this verse, a whole program of redemption is established. A plan is put into place. Genesis 22:18, which we'll come to probably in you know 2024 or so. Um, it makes this vague promise of 3.15 more specific. Genesis 22.18, God says to Abraham, And your offspring, Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Abraham, through your offspring, I'm going to bless the world. So God intends to bless the world through those born to Abraham. God will defeat evil through someone born to a woman in Abraham's family. And this is, again, this is going to be an overarching theme of, of Genesis, that God's plan is that there's hope for humans. Humans have a destiny. There will be salvation for them, despite what they did in the garden. So Genesis 3.15 is setting the stage for the rest of Genesis, indeed the rest of the whole Bible. It says there will be a war, the two sides or the two seeds, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. We're already told who wins, as I said, and we're told that in the victory there will be Wounding, but though wounded, the woman's seed wins. Now Moses, I think, wants us to feel the surprise of what's happening here. The reason I kind of gave you an overview of where we've been so far is because chapter 3 is a bleak chapter. But we're not meant to read this as a tragedy. It turns out the story of the Bible is a comedy, not the way that you're thinking. All that means is there's a happy ending. Verse 15 tells us that in the middle of tragedy, there's mercy. Moses, after writing what's happened, sin comes into the world, there's hiding, there's blame shifting. No one wants to take responsibility for anything. And then all of a sudden, Moses says, God through Moses says in verse 15, I will defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman. Remember, God said that they would die if they ate the forbidden fruit. So think of it, and maybe this has been you. Maybe this has literally been your story. You read the Bible for the first time. You start in Genesis 1. You get to Genesis 2, and you're just reading for the very first time. This is all brand new to you. You're like, oh, this is bad. They just turned God's perfect world into mush. I mean, they just disobeyed God. This is, this is bad stuff. But then all of a sudden... They don't die. God literally said, the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. They ate of the fruit, but they didn't die immediately. Instead, there's a conflict with the serpent. So, this means what Moses, I think, is at pains to show us, and the spirit through Moses, is that God, instead of giving us over to the serpent, says there will now be a conflict with the serpent. Adam and Eve haven't gone over to the serpent's side. By God's grace, they're going to oppose him rather than join him. Think of it. Think of it. They just followed evil in paradise. Paradise. There was nothing bad or sad or wrong. And they decided to follow the serpent. And in that context, in that context, God comes in and says, you know what? I'm not going to kill you immediately. This is amazing. Instead of going over to the serpent's side, God says, no, 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 no. You're going, to, you're going to be opposed to the serpent. You're not going to join him. 
at the beginning of the chapter, you might read this and think, they're joining, why are they joining the serpent? They're in paradise. Why are they joining the serpent? But by verse 15, we're told that they will not be joining the serpent. There will be a conflict with the serpent. This is grace for them, and it is grace for us. Think of it, brothers and sisters. Just think of your own lives. Be honest. How much have you loved evil and followed evil and done evil? And yet, God hasn't wholly given you over to evil. This is remarkable kindness. They just sided with the serpent. And instead of God saying, okay, you can, you can be on his team, he said, no, there's going to be a conflict. I'm not going to just give you over. You're my prized possessions. These are life-giving words of hope to Adam and Eve. They will live. They will fight. They're not surrendered to Satan. They're even going to have offspring together. One of them will deliver a mortal wound to God's great enemy. Interestingly, you can start to follow this seed versus seed theme throughout the Bible and into the New Testament. John the Baptist calls the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. It's not nice to call anyone a snake, but especially a, a Jewish teacher, they would know what he's talking about. He's saying, you're a seed of the serpent. Then Jesus says to his enemies, you are, you are of your father the devil, John 8, 44. Then in 1 John 3, the apostle John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Let me say that again because please don't confuse this. It doesn't say no one born of God ever sins. It says this, no one born of God makes a practice of sin. Makes a practice. He's keep, keep doing it over and over and over again with no, no thought to quit. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, John says, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does, does not love his brother. That's 1 John 3, 8 through 10. So there's a seed versus seed theme throughout the Bible and into the New Testament. Genesis 3 establishes these patterns we're meant to see even early on in the Bible. Cain versus Abel, chapter 4. Joseph versus his brothers, Pharaoh versus Israel, David versus Goliath. Interestingly, in 1 Samuel 17, it says Goliath's armor was scaly. It uses language of, of a serpent's scales. So the, the warrior clothed in scaly armor was defeated when David, what? Crushed his head with a stone. So these conflicts from Genesis 3 onward build an expectation of someone yet to come who will do this finally and fully. Now, I want us to again note the sovereignty of God in this situation. God is not reacting to what happened. He is declaring what will happen. Verse 15, look at it closely. I, who's speaking? Verse 14, the Lord God said. Verse 15, I... I will put enmity between you and the woman. So who, who initiated this conflict? 
God. God did this. Instead of giving them over to Satan, God initiated the ongoing conflict between man and Satan that concludes with Satan's defeat. God changes the woman's affections for Satan to righteous desires to crush Satan. Just a few verses earlier, she was siding with Satan, and now it says she will crush Satan. Her offspring will crush Satan. You might say that God restored her religious affections. But Adam also, because it says later in chapter 3 that Adam names his wife Eve, or the mother of all living. So Adam believes God's word. He believes that there will be offspring. He believes God's word of promise that he and Eve will have kids. But nonetheless, there will be war. Their offspring will war against the serpent's offspring. And no, Satan's children aren't demons. I think I thought that for the longest time. You, you might think of, well, Satan's offspring. Who, who, are, who are the seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent aren't his fallen angels or, or demons. The children of Satan or his offspring are all who follow him in rebelling against God. I think 1 John 3 8 through 10 is the clearest place to see that. It literally says there are children of God who practice righteousness and children of Satan who keep on sinning. So those who join Satan in rebelling against God without remorse or repentance show whose family they belong to. So the offspring of the serpent aren't his demons. They're they're natural humanity, all who follow him in rebelling against God. This means that since Genesis 3.15, humanity has been divided into two communities, two groups. There's the elect who love God and the reprobate who love self. This is John 8, again, 1 John 3. Each character in Genesis and the rest of the Bible, even everyone in this room, will either be of the seed of the woman and have her affections for the things of God or of the seed of the serpent and have his unbelief. There aren't any other communities that we can be a part of. We are either the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, or the offspring of the serpent. We either are the elect who love God or the reprobate who love self. This begs an all-important question for us, for you, this morning. More important than everything else that you're stressed out about now. And, And I get it, we're all stressed about everything. I love Damien's lesson this morning on prayer because it just reminded me that in our anxiety we can just pray, pray, and pray. There's help for us. But in those anxieties, there's something some should be even more anxious about. Whose seed are you? You're either in the community of the serpent or the community of God. There's not a third third community. And I'm not trying to do scare tactics, my friends. I'm trying to just simply say what the Bible has said for thousands of years. There's a clear dividing line throughout humanity between those who belong to God and those who don't. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 8 says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Don't just walk through life like everything's fine and then stand before God one day, assuming you're a Christian, and be sent to hell. Whose seed are you? And I know this is a big question. I don't have time to get into 
all the ins and outs of it, but I would encourage you, if that's you, you're struggling with that question, which we all have, study with a friend, if possible, study the book of 1 John. It's a short letter. God has help for you. He can help you know whether you're his child or not. Study 1 John. Read it. Pray through it carefully if you're unsure about your salvation. So Genesis 3 is a comedy, not a tragedy. There's going to be a happy ending for the children of God. Satan will be defeated. As Arthur Pink says, By woman had come sin, by woman should come the Savior. By woman had come the curse, by woman should come him who would bear and remove the curse. By woman paradise was lost, yet by woman should be born the one who should regain it. So before God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, he blesses them with this life-giving promise. And this is amazing because in the middle of this verse of judgment, we find a promise. God is folding mercy into the middle of his announcement of judgment. This is like a mercy burrito. There's judgment on the outside, but mercy in the middle. The serpent will be cursed, and mankind will be saved from his evil. This is why this verse is often called the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. This is the first words of salvation towards man. The first hint that God would send a savior for mankind. And the interesting thing is that this is a mercy that was not earned or requested. Notice that nowhere in that dialogue we've been studying did, did Adam and Eve say, God, we've sinned and please have mercy on us. They didn't say anything of that sort. They didn't request mercy. God just unilaterally decided to give it. His judgment is exacting. His mercy is surprising. This is the first picture of free mercy in the Bible. A mercy that only arises from God. Out of His goodness, God says that the man and woman will have seed. Death will not come immediately. Their seed will defeat the serpent. And mankind will come out ahead in the long battle against evil. But of course, this verse does leave us hanging. Who is this seed? Who is this masculine singular pronoun? He. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the he? Who will crush the serpent? Yeah, amen. The purpose of this verse is not to answer that question, but to merely ask it. The rest of the Bible gives us the answer. In particular, the New Testament makes clear that Satan has been and will be destroyed by King Jesus. There's two texts I want to draw your attention to. One is the one Janine read earlier, Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So through death, Jesus destroys the devil and sets free all of us who have this lifelong fear of death. Have you ever been afraid of death? We all have. But those in Christ, not that we won't be concerned, you know, we might get all caught up in like how we're going to die, and we might just chase those rabbit trails in our heads, but this verse literally says that if you're in Christ, you should not be afraid to die. 
Why? Because Jesus crushed Satan with his death. Death is dead for Jesus and everyone who belongs to him. Jesus even says this. I think it's John 8. You can back check me later. Those who obey his word, he says, will never even taste death. You close your eyes and sleep and wake up and you're alive. You don't even taste it. There's no death for you. You go from life to life. So Hebrews 2 makes plain that Jesus, through his death, has crushed the head of the serpent. But then later in Revelation 20, verse 10, we learn that Satan will be finally defeated on the last day. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, and Jesus will one day throw Satan into hell. Satan has been defeated and will be defeated by Jesus. Until then, what do we do? What do we do? Well, we keep remembering what has been done. For those of us who've trusted in Jesus, we keep remembering Jesus' victory over Satan on the cross by coming to church and singing songs and praying and having fellowship, studying the Bible together. We do our best to walk in purity. We do our best to serve others and serve our neighbors and love our enemies. But one of the ways that we persevere, one of, the, one of the ways we wait is through the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper unites God's people. It reminds us that we are one under the cross. It creates a clear dividing line between those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. I'm tempted to give you a theology of the supper. I won't do that. But so many traditions minimize this. Even Baptists have minimized the supper. The supper is meant to make clear to the world who belongs to God. Not infallibly. We're just people. We're not God. But the supper is meant to show the world these are the people who are repentant repenting repenters. Does that make sense? They've turned from their sin and they're still turning from their sin. They've trusted in Jesus and they're still trusting in Jesus. They're continuing on. They still believe that good news, that old, old story. And they're coming around the table one more time to remind themselves and one another what's true. So the supper unites us and it creates a dividing line between those who belong to God and those who don't. This means that the Lord's Supper is for Christians. The Lord's Supper is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and turned away from their sins. Those who give evidence of regeneration. In other words, that the Spirit of God is bearing fruit in their life. And they've been baptized into the church. They belong to a local church. Other brothers and sisters in Christ have come along and said, we see the Lord's work in you. The church doesn't make anyone a Christian. That's not even possible. But the church does say, we believe you're a Christian because we see it written all over your life. So in the supper, Christians who've been baptized and belong to a church who have the affirmation of the people of God that they are indeed in the people of God, remember what God has done. Remember 
the head-crushing work of Jesus Christ. So friends, if you're not yet a baptized follower of Jesus, who's part of a local church, we're so glad you're here. Please join us every Sunday. We'd love to have you with us. But we'd encourage you in these next few moments to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper with us. If you're a visitor, but you've been baptized as a Christian, and you're a member in good standing at another gospel-preaching church, you're welcome to come and observe the supper with us. Before we do the supper together, I'd like us to pause and spend a few moments confessing sin to God, remembering the cross of Jesus Christ, preparing our hearts for the supper, maybe forgiving someone. Maybe there's someone in the church you need to forgive. Leave your gift on the altar. Forgive before you come and worship, Jesus says. So let's spend a few moments preparing our hearts for the supper before we take it together.